<laughs> sure. All right, let's go ahead and pray. We bow our hearts to you, Lord, because you are the creator and redeemer of this world. And even though we can't see you, even though we can't tangibly touch you, you are... everything, for from you and through you and to you are all things. Lord, we are small, we are uh, not much in ourselves, but as we trust in you, you enable us to conquer kingdoms, and you even enable us to conquer the evil of our own hearts. And that's what matters more than anything. And I pray, Father, that you would work in us today and help us as we study your word to know you, to see you as awesome, and that we would uh, be encouraged to repent of our own lack of faith, but also be encouraged to, to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Numbers 21. Uh, We are going to start at verse 21, even though I think we might have gotten to verse 25 uh, last week. But Numbers 21 is also, the details of that are also recorded in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Most of my recollection of thinking about this whole uh, time period is from studying Deuteronomy. But there's there's a kingdom here, and then there's a kingdom here. There's these two kingdoms on the east side of the Jordan River that, that God is going to have Israel confront and if you remember originally they were just going to leave the promise or leave Egypt come up and take over the promised land because of their lack of faith their lack of obedience they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and now God is bringing them a, a roundabout way into the promised land so this this roundabout way uh, if you're going to think big picture it is as if God has put training wheels on the bike. So initially, he, he says, okay, just get on the bike and head on in. And they, and they fail miserably. And now this generation, he's, he's bringing them a different path. And that path uh, is, is really training ground. 
That's what it is. God is, is training his people so that they will be able to come in and conquer the land. Okay? Um, okay, so let's just read 21 to 24. The microphone there. Uh, let's see. Let's let Jerry read. Is that okay? Okay, doing that? No? Get some glasses. Okay. There you go. There's a microphone. Then Israel sent messengers to Shion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or the vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well, and we will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Shion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went outside against Israel, uh, against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jaz and fought against Israel. Uh, keep going a little bit more. Okay. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from, the, from Aaron to the Jabrook, Jabok, as far as the Amorites, for the border of the Amorites was strong. Okay, so um, here's the Arnon, and I think the, the Jabok is right here. So Arnon and the Jabok, so right in this area here. Um, and so uh, in the parallel with Deuteronomy, it says a lot of the same things, um, but there, there's a couple little details I want to give to you. So turn over to Deuteronomy 2 for a moment, and I'll just look at a couple. Keep your hand in numbers, so we'll go back there. So Deuteronomy 2, verse 24, rise up, set out on your journey, go over the valley of Arnon, behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land, begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. So in in the Numbers account, you don't really have like this direct command of God to do this, right? But in the Deuteronomy account, you'd clearly see that God actually said, you are going to go in and you're going to conquer these people. Go down to verse 30. Because uh, they, they give basically the same appeal. We don't really want to fight with you. Um, but then in verse 30, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. And then notice this. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So, again, what we don't see in Numbers is that there's a sovereign God who's actually uh, orchestrating this. He, he and like I say, training wheels, he, he wants the king of Sihon to actually fight against his people because he's trying to teach them that they can overcome enemies. That's what he's trying to do, okay? And then in verse 34, And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves and the plunder of the cities that we captured. So, so you have this, um, Deuteronomy's um, a summary. It's largely um, positive, 
doesn't sound like there's any disobedience on God's people, and of course there is. They're not going to be perfectly obedient. We're going to see that as we go through this. But in general, we have a more positive feel. God says, okay, I want you to fight this battle. I'm going to let you go in. I'm going to be with you. You go and you do these things, and you're going to win. And that is, uh, that's exactly what we see in, in the book of Numbers. Um, at the end of verse 24, we have that they fight um, as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. So um, here's Judge Book. So this border seems to be strong. So they, they, they fight a certain battle against Sihon. They win in this fight. And, and then they pause. And we're going to see how, why this is important. So um, let's read 25 to 31. Um, just you pick. You can just hand the microphone to somebody. <laughs> Everybody's looking at me like, oh. <laughs> they like to read. They're, they like to read. So 25 to 31. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all the villages thereof. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and taken all his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon. Wherefore they that speak in Proverbs say, Come into Heshbon, let the city of Sihon be built and prepared. For for there is a fire gone out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It hath consumed Ar of Moab, and the lords of the high places of Arnon. Woe to thee, Moab, thou art undone, O people of Shemosh. He hath given his sons that escaped, and his daughters into captivity, unto Sihon, king of the Amorites. We have shot at them. Heshbon has perished, even unto Debon. And we have laid them waste even unto Nophath, which reaches into Mediba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Okay, so again, I like sports analogies. So you know how it works. If, if um, you know, North Carolina State uh, beats uh, Wake Forest, and then Wake Forest beats uh, UNC, then obviously NC State is better than UNC, right? Because you can see how that works, right? So, so we beat the one who beat you. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. I try to do this in Southern. It would be easier for me to do if I were Big Ten schools. So. Um, but anyway, you get the feeling. So in this situation, this kingdom, uh, this kingdom fought against Moab. Now, we still haven't gotten to Balak yet and Balaam and the whole big struggle with Moabites. But the Moabites are this really, really powerful kingdom that, um, that is actually far away as well. It's not just, I don't know, where, I mean, it's, uh, it's even, I don't know if you can see this. So, um, see here, it got Moab. But it, it, it's like, it stretches farther away and it's bigger than just this little kingdom right here. But this little kingdom kicked the Moabs out, the Moabites out, kicked them out. So then the idea is now that Israel has come and defeated these guys, that must mean that they're bigger than Moab. 
That's kind of the, the feeling that you're supposed to get in all this. So they actually write songs about it, right? And what are the things that they say in the songs? See, look in verse 26. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of the hand as far as Arnon. So like the king of Sihon kicked out the Moabites. And then therefore the ballad singers in verse 27, come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of Arnon. And so you can see in the song, it's actually not mocking, but, but we're better than you. You can just hear the people like NC State going, we're, gonna, we're better than you, NC, kind of attitude. Woe to you, O Moab, for you are undone, O people of Kamosh. And Kamosh was their god. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. We beat, we beat the ones who beat you. Um, so we're better than you. Um, so there's, there's um, Israel now living in this land. So what purpose does the song serve? How does this song, you know, in Israel's, it's, you've got a history of Israel coming up and going to be heading into the promised land, but there's got to be a, a purpose for these songs. What's the, what's the redemptive purpose for singing these sorts of songs? Yeah, it's, it's like a cheerleader. You know, you know uh, all the cheerleaders, I remember I have all these, uh, um, you know, uh, they, they'd say one of the players' names on the, on the team, you know, Steve, Steve, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. You know, it's like, and there's this cheering of God's people. You just beat one of the best guys on the block, right? And there's an encouragement, okay? Now, do you ever need that kind of encouragement against the spiritual foes that you face? <laughs> right? You're not always facing a physical enemy that you're actually trying to conquer a kingdom, but you're facing spiritual foes. You're facing uh, enemies that are opposed to you that are trying to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And you need to be cheered on. You need to take the small victory to help you to fight the next victory. And when you have a victory, you should in- be encouraged by that victory. Even take, Don't be like, well, I haven't won at all yet. You know, you always... There's these, again, sports analogies, but, you know, you're in the NCAA tournament, you're a 16 seed, you make it to the Sweet 16, it's like, no, we can't cheer because, you know, we, we have to, haven't won it all yet. No, you're supposed to cheer when you make it that far in the tournament. You're supposed to be happy at each, each, each period, and that's help, there to help propel you to the next stage. So that's what's going on here. Any questions or comments? Also, just know, this kingdom of Sihon is a, if you want to look at it, it is a kingdom of darkness. It is ruled by evil uh, forces, belongs to the enemy. It's not, it's not God's land, you know, it's just out there. It's ruled by um, foreign gods. Now, the scriptures always have this 
attention. Some places in scripture, it's like foreign gods are nothing. They're not even a breath. But in other places, you understand that the, the, the uh, pagan gods are really connected to demonic forces. And there are true demonic forces that are in this land. They are, they're, they're dark and evil and powerful. And into this land comes God's people, and they conquer them. So that's another thing. You know, we, we rightly should fret as our country moves away from God's purposes and, and um, turns into dark and evil ways. We should, we should be concerned with that. At the other hand, on the other hand, something like this tells you, is God really unable to do what he wants to do? This is like a complete darkness, sends his people in, and they win. So it just changes the perspective. God is big. He's a lot bigger than we give him credit for. And he's able to do what he wants to do. And he does, in this situation, win the victory. And they celebrate that. Okay? But... For whatever reason, the border from here to here is even—it's strong, and it's like it's even a new enemy. So you get done fighting one, and then you got another. And this is again like the Christian life—you think you've won a victory and you've celebrated that victory, and then you got to get up on Monday morning and go face another victory or another challenge, right? It's just like the enemies just keep coming at you, and it's—it's it's one after the other. So here we are. Let's read um, thirty-two through thirty-five. Uh, who would like? Raise your hand, and then he can just bring the... Who would like to read? There you go. Or at least raised her hand. That's good. <laughs> and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them. He and all his people to battle at Edrai. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and all his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left as they possessed his land. Okay, so again... It's, it's very similar, except there's a, there's a couple things that you can see here. Obviously, even after their great victory and their really, really awesome cheerleading songs, how do they feel when they go in and face the next enemy? They're still afraid, <laughs> right? So, so again, and, and we're like this too, right? You're here on Sunday morning, you sing praise, God is awesome, and then you go into the week and you're like, oh, can God handle this problem, Right? Okay, so, so just time-wise, this is Joshua. Uh, David is hundreds of years later. So it could be the same name, but not brother. Might have some connection, but not brother. Okay, so, um, so you see, how does God treat them when they're afraid in verse 34? Yeah, he doesn't say, what's your problem? Did I not just defeat this king? Why are you afraid now? You know, no, God's like, okay, I get it. You're afraid again. 
you got problems, <laughs> you're struggling to believe, he gets that, right? He, he gets where you are. He understands this, and he reacts to them in their natural fearfulness. He is encouraging to them. Don't be afraid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you victory in this, in this battle as well. And... Right, so he's... It, not, yes, so then... Okay, that's an excellent, that's an excellent point. So... They're entering into the battle. This is where the battle begins. They, they have to fight the battle. Okay? Um, but even before the battle starts, God declares victory. Okay? How does he do that in your life against sin, your fight against sin? That's right. I, God says, I will finish the work I have begun in you. Uh, he who began will complete it. And he says things like, you are a saint. Tells the church, you're saints. But wait, I'm not a saint. I'm, I'm full of sin. I'm still not there where I need to be. No, you're a saint. Why? Because God says, I have given you the victory. Right? And we have to, at this point, we don't have the victory yet. Not in our experience. We don't have it yet, so what do we have to do when God declares it here? What's our response? Right. That's why we live from faith to faith. The entirety of your Christian life is your um, trusting that what God says is true will be true. That's right. Uh, Paul says things like, "I, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? Is he talking, is he saying that, oh, I'm already here? No, he's, he's got battles, and he's losing sometimes. Right? Um, you know, Romans 7, the, that which I want to do, I don't do. <laughs> you know, that which I should do, I don't do. You know, like, I, what I know I shouldn't do, I do do. Someday. So, but he still, it doesn't deny the fact that God says you're going to have victory. And so it's a very real thing for us to say, do I believe that what God tells me about myself is true? Are you most defined by your failures, or are you most defined by what Christ tells you? And you have to believe... Okay, so again, there are sometimes in 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 uh, your battles, especially in these training ground battles, where the picture of victory seems absolute and complete, and that's good, because sometimes God just able enables you to conquer a sin and you just go forward and you win the victory. You know the whole story, though, right? Test, test, test. 
And you're supposed to think of the whole story. What happens as they go into... What happens as they go into um, the promised land? Is it absolute, complete victory? No. Um, and so, that, that's just the way it is in this life. Like, you have, you have some times where you fight against a sin, and you come home and you say, man, this is, 20 times this guy cut me off, you know, over the past five years, and I, and I always get angry. Well, this time someone cut me off and I was able to stay calm. I had victory. And so you have that victory and it feels really good and you should rejoice in those victories. But it doesn't mean that the next day you're going to have something that's not going to hit you and cause you to react wrongly, right? You have to keep walking in the battle knowing that God will give you ultimate and complete victory. But here we have very mixed and very partial victory okay and that's okay yes lee yep And that's, and that's really what God's doing in this. He, he knows that if he can um, give his people a taste of victory, it will actually perpetuate future victories. And I think God does that in this situation. Now, the problem is, if he just gave you all quick and easy victories right off the bat, due to your wicked, foul, evil hearts, what would you begin to think? Yeah. <laughs> You start trusting in your own power. You quit relying on him. You get arrogant over people who are still struggling. What's their problem? I conquered that sin, right? I mean, all these things come out. We don't, and so um, it's like you win one battle. There's more to you know. The depths of your sins, like an onion, you just keep peeling back, right? It's just more and more there. So, and God knows this. God is not. Uh, he's not going. Man, this is a lot more difficult a job than when I thought. Um, he, uh, he knows what he's doing from the beginning. Okay. Now, there's some other good things that happen because they win this victory uh, and they're singing about it. Turn to Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. So here's Rahab explaining to uh, the spies that they have heard about you Israelites. And she says in verse 10, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you came up out of Egypt, and what you did uh, to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
So somehow, whether it's just news reports or maybe it's songs, you know, the songs that they sang when they came up out of Egypt and maybe those songs got somehow, you know, carried uh, further and somehow the people in Jericho know all about these victories that they've had and it actually brings them fear. Um, sometimes when you... Uh, Sometimes when you have had victories, uh, it, it like awakens Satan and spiritual forces to fight against you because they're afraid of, of victories that you're having. They don't like that. It can even get worse, get harder. So just another, another aspect of thinking about these victories, it has some effect on the people um, who are uh, outside of the covenant. Also, turn to Psalm 135. In Psalm 135, okay, so I want to just get a little bit of, um, like, uh, disclosure, they say full disclosure, like, I'm not so smart to find all of these connections in Scripture. I rely on two things. <laughs> I rely on concordances, you know, where you can look up a word and you can see every time Sihon is used throughout Scripture. I've got those kind of concordance on a computer, so it makes it really fast. In fact, they're so proud, my computer programmers, they say, they actually tell me the speed with which they do their searches. So, like, it'll say .0432 seconds took us to find all these for you. Just so you know, we're, we're fast at this. Anyway, so that's one. The other is commentaries. Commentaries are very helpful because other people have spent years studying this stuff, and they, they connect. So some things do come to my mind, but not all of them. So don't feel overwhelmed, but don't be afraid to get yourself a good concordance. They're very, very helpful in your own study of the Scripture. Okay, so Psalm 135 uh, begins, uh, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his own possession. We should be happy because we are in the church. You are the, the uh, heirs of Israel. That's who we are. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for rain, brings forth wind from his storehouses. These are all providence hand. But then, he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. And here we go. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people. So here, and it's, this goes on. God, you're blessing your house. You're doing these wonderful things to, for us. So does God expect us to remember not just your personal victories, does he expect you to remember the victories of his people in the past? Yes. yes, he does. You are supposed to draw strength because God defeated Og and Sihon. So when I taught this to the youth group going through Deuteronomy, I would, I would 
often just say, Og, Sihon, so that they would get drilled in their head. Og and Sihon are enemies that God has in the past defeated, so he is going to defeat your enemies. Because you belong to Israel. You're his people, his treasured possession. He will fight for you. It's hard to believe sometimes when we're fighting our own spiritual battles and we feel like we're failing and we don't feel like we're gaining ground. But these past victories of God's people are there to remind us that God is able, and this is coming from the sermon, to bring his victory out of chaos. That's what he does. And I think this is one of the reasons why we should sing psalms. Not that we should only sing psalms. But this psalm actually forces us to go, Og, Sihon, who are those guys? And you go back and you start learning the stories and you say, oh, these are the victories prior to going into the promised land. And this is important for us because the final victory of going into the promised land is like going into the new heavens, new earth. That's like death. This, these victories are victories that you have in this life. These are the ones before you head into the promised land. These are just life that you're in. You have to fight the battles against sin every day. And God is there fighting for you. And it's a blessing So, um, to know this and to remember these things. All right, questions or comments? It is wonderful, isn't it? Even from the book of Numbers, who would figure? All right, we're back in Numbers, chapter 22. This is a new section. A new section in the book of Numbers. It's, it's basically chapters 22 through 24. They are still... On the plains of Moab, uh, here's Jericho, so they're right in this area here. Um, that encampment on the plains of Moab is the, is the setting of the whole book of Deuteronomy. Okay? The book of Numbers has been the wanderings and all this kind of stuff, but this, this section in, in Numbers... It is set at the same time that the Israelites are, are in the book of Deuteronomy. They have won victories over Sihon and Og. And there is a new type of struggle. It is actually a more sinister Actually, a more sinister struggle. Um, Moses has recently struck the rock, and God is angry with him. And Moses' answer, or our lesson from Moses, is if the most faithful fails then failure is open to anybody okay if the most faithful 
fails, then it, it's open to anybody. Okay, so let's go ahead and start reading here. Numbers 22, verses 1 to 6. Mary Dunn, you want to read for me? Okay. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because there were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Okay. First off, just a little tidbit. In verse 1, it says, They camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan. What is sneaky fishy about that statement? Beyond the Jordan. Okay, they're here. Here's the Jordan River. They're on this side of the river. And they say that they are encamped beyond the Jordan. Right, so here they are in the book of Numbers. They haven't even crossed the river yet. They're not across it yet. And yet, the perspective that they have is that where their camp is right now is beyond the Jordan. Why? Because... This is their home. They're, it's as if they're already here. If you were living here, you would call this beyond the Jordan. If you're on this side of the land, you would call that beyond the Jordan. But even though they're encamped here, they call it beyond the Jordan because this is their perspective. This is my home. And I think that this is a, a just a, it could be put in by an editor later. It could be Moses writing it. I don't know exactly what's going on, but it's, it's, they shouldn't have put beyond the Jordan when they're living on this side. Go ahead, Debbie. <laughs> well, see, and, and that's and that's a, and it's 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 accurate. It's it's true. But that wording is, I believe, actually a statement of faith that you do believe this is your home and that where you're living now is not where your true home is. Okay, I think that's. Uh, uh, intentional, whether it's done by Moses or an editor or someone. Um, in Numbers 32, 32, we will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan and possession of our, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. So they're actually saying, we're going to go in and take, but some of them are going to maintain possession of land over here. They're going to call that beyond the Jordan. Um, so, um, okay. Okay, here we go. Let's put it in your own terminology. If I were to say that um, the land beyond the Blue Ridge, 
what would you say? Where would you think I'd be talking about? Huh? Tennessee. Tennessee. But if you were living in Tennessee and you said the land beyond the Blue Ridge, what would you be talking about? North Carolina. It's your perspective. Okay, that's kind of... Well, just to to show how this phrase is picked up in Scripture, turn to Isaiah 9 for a moment. I get that some of these things probably don't matter to anybody but some nerd like myself, but I'm just giving it to you. Isaiah 9.1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. They're still using that phrase. And it's not by accident that in Matthew 4, Matthew 4, 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So even my, I would even think that Galilee a lot of times is on this side, but they're referring to it over here as if it's beyond the Jordan because Jesus is coming into the darkness and bringing victory. You know, so they're just using that terminology, beyond the Jordan. And... Um, you know, the, the Bible is, is history, it's, it's law, it's, but it's also literature. And, and they're, they're picking up these phrases. This is why if I were going to do Bible study, I would, and I didn't have my Greek and Hebrew stuff that I could play with on my computer, I would have multiple translations. Some of them would be uh, like an NIV or a, um, more of a paraphrase. And then I'd have some that are more literal. Because the literal ones help you to see these connections more, quick, more closely because they'll, they'll attach themselves better. Whereas the, the ones that are uh, less literal, still good, good translations, but it's often harder to see the connections. So, okay. So symbolically, Jesus will come to Israel from beyond the Jordan. So just as the Israelites come in this way to conquer the land, Jesus is coming in this way. He is your pioneer. He is your pathfinder. He is the one that goes first and wins the victory for you, and then we follow in his wake. So, uh, and that's what's going on here. Okay. Back in Numbers. 22, verse 2. Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel had done to the Amorites. Balak is a king of Moab. Okay? Um, He's the son of Zippor. And um, what kind of things do we know about the Moabites? Anything at all? I got a ton of stuff here, but I don't know if I want to give you. um, Huh? Lot's connection, right, that's right. This is connection with Lot's daughters, excellent. What's that? Ruth, 
Yep, she was a Moabitess. Very good. You guys are doing good. Um, huh? Yes, yes. And then at, at the end of Israel, uh, the history of Israel, then God say, I'm going to take down the Moabites. But that's years ahead. Okay. So the Moabites... Um, uh, in Jeremiah 48, there's a lengthy diatribe against Moab. Um, let's see. And Zephaniah, the ultimate destruction of Moab is pronounced. Um, but those are latter days. So Moab will become... Moab will become a picture of evil that God destroys in the end. But right now, they are a, they symbolize evil that is still present with God's people and will actually become a, a temptation to God's people. So like, the Bible uses Og and Sihon as people that God just goes in, conquers, they're wiped out, they're gone. But the Moabites are this lingering presence of evil with God's people. This is why I say this is more sinister. This is like you dealing with the same sins as those outside of the church. You've been influenced by the evils that are around. Okay? So the way that this battle, this, this spiritual war that's going to take place, begins is with the king, Balak the king, he knows that he is going to be defeated. How does he know he's going to be defeated? History, History of the, you know, the Israelites took these other people, right? He's afraid. Now, if, I don't, it's not allegorical, but I'm just trying to draw the connections to you with, with Satan. Satan is defeated. He knows that. He's going to lose. And yet... The, he, does he quit fighting against you? He, it, but what he does is he doesn't do the frontal attacks that he used to do in this point. It's not just this army against this army. So he's going to do more subtle, more sinister attacks. And all this today, but you're going to see this, this story of Balaam and Balak and the Moabites. Oh, it is a sad story. Um, yeah, I don't want to tell you too much. You just let it unfold. And it would be fun for you to kind of start reading this because it's very confusing. But as I started to think about this and study it this time through, I was just like, oh, my goodness. How often do I get sucked into the evils around me and start listening to the culture around me and just get sucked into, into uh, evils of the world around me? So, okay, here we go. Um, but we need to start out that, that he was in dread of the people, and this is his way of trying to overcome the people, even though he's afraid of them. So what does he do? What's his solution in verses 5 and 6? Goes to Balaam. Now, who is Balaam? Son of Baor. That helps us a lot, right? He, he lives in Pethor, and Pethor is near the Euphrates River. So he's somewhere here. Does that make sense? He is not close by. 
what I'm getting at. Balaam is over here. Balak's here, but he, he finds a, who is, what is he? What, who is this Balaam guy? What is this guy? That's a great way to put it. You think there wasn't sorcerers in the Bible? Here is a pagan sorcerer. Okay? So what is, what is the reputation that he has? Right. So here's what I'm going to say. He has a reputation of being able to manipulate the gods to fight for you. Okay? And we say, oh, that kind of stuff is just, that's fantasy. That's, that's not real stuff. But here it is. He has a reputation of this. And obviously, there's battles that are fought over here, not having to do with Israel at all. And somehow this is kind of like a type of Merlin or something. You know, he's, he's, he's able to go to the pagan god, which I would say is probably a demon, and he's able to kind of, you know, barter with them in some way that he can get that god to fight for the person that he's representing. And for whatever reason, he is able to do this. It's not just hocus pocus. Yes, Christian. A seer is a prophet. But you have to understand, like a seer sees into the future, right? Sees into the future. So, but you have to understand, you come at prophet from the perspective of the Bible. He is not a biblical prophet. So think of a, like a, think of a, someone who's able to influence the future and say things um, that, that you can speak something and then that something happens. So um, even when Paul was walking around, there was uh, some woman that was able to like predict the future and he, and he like gets the demon out of her and she doesn't have that power anymore. And everybody's mad, you know, like, wait a minute, you know, what have you done here? So I don't know exactly all the details of Balaam, but he is a pagan. And, and if you think of paganism, the demonic world is trying to destroy humans. But part of what humans try to do when they try to, to go into the demonic world, and try to, they're trying to manipulate the demonic world to serve their purposes. That's what's happening. <laughs> I know. Yes. So, and, and I, I agree. And I would argue that um, where the gospel goes forth and, and conquers, a lot of times a lot of this activity diminishes or goes underground. Uh, but as the, the power of the, the gospel decreases, these forces become more powerful. This is why I think during Jesus' time, there was all kinds of demonic, uh, you know, possession and oppression and all that kind of stuff going on. And he goes in and he just starts casting it out, right? But then he says, look, if you don't feel this with good, with me, it's going to come back in. And that's exactly what happened in Israel after Jesus uh, left, is that Israel became even worse than it was before he came. So... Anyway, so the spiritual forces in our world are real, and this story is one story of those, okay? And Balaam 
is a prophet, and here's the trick. As you read this, and I, I guarantee you, because it's happened to me, and I've talked to uh, lots of other people, you read numbers, and you think, what's wrong with Balaam? He always says the right stuff. I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. I'm not really opposed to God. Okay? Balaam is so deceptive. We talk about Satan posing as an angel of light. Balaam does this. And, um, and it, once you understand it, you're like, oh, my goodness. Um, okay. So here he is. He gets him, and he, and he says, I got to go get Balaam, because Balak thinks, Balak thinks, if I pay enough money to Balaam, Balaam will be able to manipulate the gods and get Israel's God, because he knows Yahweh is Israel's God. He wants Balaam to manipulate Israel's God to fight for him. That's what he wants to have happen. Because this has worked. Balaam's been able to do this in all the other pagan fights that he's had. But what Balaam doesn't understand is instead of just coming up against another demon or another false god, he's actually coming up against Yahweh. All right, let's see what the request is. 7 through 14. Uh, Howard, you want to read that, please? The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Okay. All right, so this, is, this first encounter is very important. What's the purpose of the people from Balak? What do they want to do? They want to defeat Israel. They actually bring with them fees for divination, right? So they, they think that somehow they can get him to work his magic to bring a curse upon Israel. Okay, so, um, and they come and Balaam, Balaam, Balaam is after wealth and power. Okay? That's, that's what he's done all along. In all these other battles, people come to him, they pay him money, and he somehow does his work, and somehow God works on their side, or at least he convinces them he does, these other false gods, and they're able to defeat their enemies. So he knows, this is his 
modus operandum. Here comes another kingdom, okay? And they come, and he says, okay, very sly, only going to do what the Lord tells me to do. He goes to God, and God tells him what? It's funny. It's, it's like he goes and does his thing, and then it says God shows up. So like the God of Israel shows up. And what does God say? <laughs> you shall not go with them. Right. I don't understand how he is a seer to God. He's saying, he's saying, I will go talk to Israel's God. Yes. Yes. He knows, but he thinks Israel's God is like any of the other gods that he's. You know, he might go to, what is it, uh, Heshbon or. The God that's controlling Israel, I'll go talk to him. Yes. Yep, that's exactly. He, but he, he, he just underestimates Yahweh. And he underestimates Yahweh's commitment to bless Israel. That's what he underestimates. He thinks that he'll be able to work the same magic that he's able to work in all the other situations that he's been in. Okay? Um, so he, he actually, you know, doesn't have a problem using the covenant name of God. Um, all these kind of things. Okay, so... Um, let's keep going. 15... To 17. Oh, you got questions? Go ahead. God won't let me go with you. Now, it's going to be interesting because we've we got to follow this, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but we're going to follow this, try to follow it quickly. So, uh, uh, Christian, read um, 15 to 17. Once again, Balak sent. Princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Sippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse these people for me. Okay, so how does Balak uh, interpret this? Is he satisfied? Oh, I guess God will not be bent. I, I, what's it? Yeah. So Balak thinks, I haven't given him enough money. I haven't given him enough, you know, kudos so that he knows how important he is and how much I, I'll do whatever you want. Let me increase the offer. He thinks that Balaam is, is uh, uh, just trying to play a bartering game with him. And you know what? He is correct. This is where it seems like Balaam, he's on the side of God. I can't do that. I can't curse this people. But look what happens in the very next section. So 18 and 19. Go ahead. Uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, now does that not sound great? Doesn't it sound wonderful? I, listen, I told you guys, the Lord is the Lord. I can't do anything opposed to him. But why don't you guys stay here tonight? 
stay with me. Why would he say stay with me? Go home. I'm not going with you guys. I'm done. He's going to get more from him. He's a lobbyist. Okay, we're going to stop right here because it is quarter till. But it is, it, you're going to see this bartering that goes on. And Balaam is so crafty because Balaam always has an exit strategy. He's always got a way to get himself out of it so he doesn't lose face. Because if he's not able to do what he is supposed to be able to do, what does that look like about him? He doesn't have the power. So he's, he, I, could, I can only do what the Lord says. You know, I can only do that. You know, but stay with me a little while. We'll work on this. Because we're, we're not even halfway into it yet. There's going to be another approach and another approach. And he's going to go with them. And it's going to end up that there's going to be a donkey that's going to sh- get in his face and say, don't you understand? Anyway, it, and then, this is the, as you, I want you to go home and read this, but God even plays the game. God later on said, oh, go ahead, go with him. When his first word was, don't go with him. But he's so much willing to play this game, and God's just like, you want to play the game? Play the game. I'll play it with you, go ahead. You're going to look like an ass. That's what he's doing. Because God is stronger than any manipulation that could possibly take place against his people. That's the lesson. That's the first lesson. The next lesson's terrible, but we'll get to that later, next week. Father, thank you so much for this class, and thank you that you are bigger than any evil, demonic force in this world. Lord, I have to admit, I think there are times where I have been uh, snookered uh, by evil forces, and it's terrible. But Lord, help me to have confidence in you, Help me to, to trust in you and to reside um, in, a, in a spirit of confidence that you will defeat all of my foes. Thank you, Lord, for this class. Please bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen.